team. This is the Innovation Inc. podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Brown Evans. We sit down with our favorite entrepreneurs and nerd out on anything that involves innovation in the corporate space. So if you work for a corporate company, but you think like an entrepreneur, we're your people, and we're really excited you're here. Before we jump in, a huge thank you to our sponsor and Inc. 5000 company, Apex Software. They create powerful custom software, websites, and mobile apps that take your business's innovative ideas and turn them into realities. Reach out today to get a quote at apexsoftware.com. All right, everyone, let's get to it. Hey, everyone, it is Liz Brown Evans. We are back on the Innovation Inc. series of the Awesome Inc. podcast. For those of you who have not listened to the only other innovation incubation series that we've done. Um, a little bit of background. We, you've heard me previously on some awesome ink episodes. Garrett and I have interviewed a bunch of really exciting corporate innovators together, and we are officially launching our own mini series for corporate innovation under the awesome ink podcast. So, um, we used to be called Venture Labs. I won't go into the details, but we are rebranding to Innovation Incubated. Um, and as a little refresher, we work with companies to make strategic, innovative decisions um, using some of our expertise we have after working 12 years with 12. entrepreneurs. We cannot believe it has been that long. So I'm not going to go into more of my details because you can find that at innovationincubated.com. But today I'm excited to introduce you to Alex Reed, who is actually a repeat guest on the podcast. So you can go to episode number, I don't think we have that prepped. You can find it in the show notes. But Alex Reed was on the podcast two years ago. Um, and Garrett interviewed him a bit more about entrepreneurship and his journey in that regard. A lot has changed in two years. So we're excited to bring him back on a bit under the lens of corporate innovation. Um, but Alex, I'm going to let you take it from here. Tell us a little bit, maybe a quick refresher. If people aren't going to go back and listen to the episode. Episode 14. Oh, that's Just great, Garrett. It. Episode 14. Wow. You're, you're like early OG. digits. Yeah, he's, early, he's one of the OG. That was season one. I don't think we have seasons, but we'll call it season one. Take it from here. <laughs> well, thank you, Liz. Good morning to you both. Um, yeah, excited to be a second time guest. You know, you burst my bubble a little bit earlier when you told me I wasn't the first second time guest, but still feel honored and privileged to be here with you all and excited about the conversation. So, so quick background on me. Um, I spent the first decade of my career with a company right in your all's backyard called Big Ass Fans. A lot of people know uh, the brand, know the story. Uh, it was a very, very high growth company. A lot of innovation, a lot of excitement, and ultimately a very large exit uh, for the region uh, at the end of 2017. Uh, so I cut my teeth uh, in my career there, um, started as an intern, um, and when we exited, I was the global head of marketing um, for the company. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, but a lot happened in between <laughs> internship and exit. And on the heels of that exit, I actually co-founded a direct-to-consumer cleaning products company uh, with the former COO at Big Ass Fan. So um, we were itching to do something more entrepreneurial uh, once we left Big Ass, and um, we launched that company in uh, 2018, and then recently exited that in uh, March of uh, this year, 2021. Um, so I've been busy. I've, I've, I've been busy for the first, uh, gosh, what has it been, 13 years of my career. Yeah, I hear you're taking a vacation weekend. Is this your first in 13 years? I keep telling everybody it's fun employment, um, <laughs> but the reality of it is I've, I've been working with a handful of uh, brands ranging from billion dollar companies to uh, early stage startups. 
Um, it's, it's definitely uh, lower pressure <laughs> than some of the environments I've been in, but um, still fun. I mean, I'm a business junkie. I love getting to know new markets, new categories. And so it's been fun for me to kind of sit back and look at other people's problems for uh, the first time in my career. That's awesome. For those who are Twitter fans, I would highly recommend a follow of Alex on Twitter. He doesn't think he has a following or is funny yet. I personally disagree. And I'm here to I'm here to launch your Twitter uh, celebrity status. So, well, Alex, today, I think we want to um, focus a lot. I would love to hear a little bit more about your experience at Big Ass Fans. Certainly in the region, it's known for being um, a very innovative company. Like you said, that was high growth very quickly. Um, and then we kind of want to transition a little bit later, maybe near the end of the episode to um, Truman's and hearing a little bit more about that. But to start, tell us a little bit about what corporate innovation looked like at Big Ass Fans. Yeah, that's a great question because Big Ass Fans was a very unique business in a lot of ways. I think number one was it was a bootstrapped uh, founder-led company for uh, the entirety of, of my time there all the way through exit. Um, no outside investors, no board. Um, no governance of any kind, really. So, you know, there's good and bad with that. And I think from an entrepreneurial standpoint, there was um, absolutely nothing standing in the founder's way if he wanted to take large bets, um, make new investments, things that um, others may be more cautious about. So I always say he was an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. Um, one of the things he really relished, I think, was new ideas, new perspectives, and a byproduct of that was we had a very uh, young working culture. Um, I think the average age for, for my time there was probably 30 years old. Um, you were definitely um, one of the senior leaders if you were 30 years old. Um, and that's because you, you don't know what you don't know um, when you're inexperienced. And I think that uh, that sort of ignorance is, can be helpful in an entrepreneurial environment. You're One, you're not afraid of risk. Um, you, you never really failed, so you don't even know what that feels like. Um, you're curious. Um, so the, these were qualities that were really admired and encouraged. And I think um, really described me to an extent and why the founder, the CEO, um, really took me under his wing at an early age. Um, I was shocked when he even talked to me as an intern, and it turned into more conversations, collaboration, opportunities to run campaigns with budgets like that made my eyes pop as a 20-year-old kid, um, and then continually and progressively picking up more experience. So, you know, ultimately getting to run small portions of the marketing group, um, getting to launch our first consumer product in that whole business, um, getting to run all of marketing at some point. And, you know, it was just progressively asking for more and more. Um, and that sort of, uh, we call it entrepreneurship, um, was really in the DNA of the, the business. If you were aggressive, you were a go-getter, you were a hard worker, you were going to be rewarded. You didn't have to be the smartest person. Um, you didn't have to have a Harvard MBA. If, if you had grit and energy, um, you were going to get opportunities in, in one way or another. Um, and so that was really fun for me. I, I tell people it was like entrepreneurship without the personal risk. Um, you know, I got to, to kind of make these bets and try things and experiment in more of a controlled fashion. But um, it was really helpful for me in my career at that stage to um, have those opportunities. And, and certainly, I think failure teaches you a lot. Um, and when you can fail in a controlled, safe environment, I think it's the best of both worlds. So um, I'm, I will forever be grateful for the experience I had there. And it was just a cool company. Um, a lot of money invested in R&D, a lot of new product launches, 
a lot of just aggressive go-to-market strategies. And, uh, you know, I think we're, we're seeing more of it and certainly what we all want here in, in this conversation, but we want more companies pushing for change and innovation in the region and taking bets. Um, and Big Ass Fans was really ahead of its time in that regard. You mentioned that there was kind of any idea on the table. Was there structure of any sort of innovation or what? It sounds like it was built into the DNA of any idea goes. If you've got it, take it and run with it. But was there any level of of a system or a playbook that you guys were working with on how innovation worked? Yes and no. I think there's the squishy culture answer, which is one of those kind of indescribable qualities, what makes a, a culture unique. But I'll say this, when you're named big ass fans, you're going to attract a certain type of person <laughs> that's willing to go against the grain and you know, tell your grandmother that you're working for big ass fans. Um, so I think there was a natural magnetism for that type of talent at the business. Um, I also think there was a lot of that management by walking around philosophy. Um, so you have a little bit of a meritocracy that you create with that management style because everybody has a voice and the best ideas can rise to the top. Even, like I said, if you're just an intern sitting in the corner minding your own business, you're going to get drawn into it. Um, structurally, I do think they uh, operated the company, they, I guess, being all of us collectively, uh, in a way that allowed for entrepreneurship. Um, there were, uh, you know, budgets that were dynamic. So if you wanted to do something just because it wasn't in the budget at the beginning of the year, you could go out and get more money. And that really ties back to it being, you know, sole proprietorship. If the founder wanted to make $1 at the end of the year, because he poured all of the profit into new investments, that was his prerogative. Um, and so I think that agility and flexibility with, with budgeting um, was one important structure, uh, structural piece. And then the other, I think, was that we were very agile from an org design standpoint. We were never married to this very layered and rigid, okay, after five years, you're you know at this level of the company, you know, 10 years, you're here. Um, there was... The business was reinventing itself continually. And so there were, you know, I mentioned earlier that I got to launch the consumer product business. Well, that business unit didn't exist. And so there weren't roles, um, there were roles created to support that new business. And so when you're constantly launching new businesses within your business, you're creating new opportunities. And so we always had a very flat org structure because we needed to be able to repurpose talent constantly. And I think that also, you know, spurs this entrepreneurship because, again, you're not on the track of a mature business like a Procter & Gamble where you know exactly what you're going to do after two years there, after five years there. Um, that, and that's really uh, reflective of a high growth company where you just don't know what roles are going to exist in five years. And that attracts a certain type of person. I mean, some people are uncomfortable with that. And some people love it and they say, I'm just going to work hard and, you know, I'm excited for what may be there for me uh, in a couple of years that doesn't exist now. So you're, you've spoken already a little bit to even budgets and structure. What was the general disposition towards pitching ideas? Risk is a big topic that comes up with a lot of the companies that we talk with. How do you approach risk? How do you analyze risk? Um, and then maybe even get into communication between R&D and sales and marketing. I think that funnel is something that it has a lot of friction in a lot of companies. Something can be brought up in the lab, but to actually execute and get it to market are two very different things. So I'm curious how big ass fans approach those topics. 
Yeah, I think um, risk was very tolerated. I mean, just to, to put it bluntly, um, we were a collaborative organization, though. Ideas um, could come from anywhere. Product ideas could come from sales and marketing. Um, uh, marketing strategy ideas could come from engineering. Um, there, there weren't walls that I think you see with a lot of businesses where people felt like they were stepping on you know, other people's toes. Um, and that kind of speaks to the culture piece where it was this everybody walking around, getting to know each other. You know, there were beer fridge days. If we had, you know, a high sales number and again, you get a cross pollination of everybody. There were intentional efforts made to bring um, diversity of thought into conversations. So you knew your engineering counterparts, you know, before we we started talking formally on this podcast was we were talking about an old friend that uh, we both share and, you know, he was in engineering. He and I ended up traveling a lot, doing work with Google, Apple, Amazon on the tech side. And he was bringing much more of a product and technical perspective to it. I was bringing much more of a marketing perspective to it, but there was crossover. And I think that was one of the things we tried to, um, formalize as much as you can, but by throwing cross-functional teams at projects. Um, as far as the budget question goes, it, it was a living document. I mean, I've never, I, I, I haven't been inside of that many companies, but the ones I have are much more rigid in terms of the process you have to go through if you're going to um, go outside of your budget and it's very arduous. Um, here, it was extremely flexible. Um, you know, I think, Big bets were made probably too big at certain times. I mean, that can be one of the, the scary things and frustrating things. Um, and so um, I definitely think there's uh, some duality to this type of culture and environment. But generally speaking, um, the, the bottom line was not um, important to the founder. And so it, the buck kind of stopped there literally where he would say, I'm not in business to make money. I have to make money to be in business, to, to you know, keep this going, to invest in the company, to hire more people, but it's not why I'm doing this. And that philosophy permeated, I think, to where we all sort of had our eye on growth and top line, much more than how can we squeeze you know, another uh, six points of margin out of this product line. Um, and that was fun. And that was, you know, frankly, why I wanted to do something different on the other side of the transaction, because I think that sort of um, that, that sort of operating mentality is just unique in the region. It's unique in business in general. Um, and it, it, it was a lot of fun while we were in it. And I think you're you're naming the elephant in the room to some of the executives, I'm sure, who are sweating listening to this podcast of how the <laughs> S-bands functions. Um, I think that's it's a healthy reminder that it, it's a spectrum, right? No company has to be all one or all the other. I think there are benefits to both sides. And I, I would love to hear a little bit what were, let's call them, what were some of the worthwhile downsides of working at a place with this sort of constant kinetic, maybe frenetic energy at all times? The rate of change was hard. And I'm somebody that's incredibly open-minded and easily bored and <laughs> likes, you know, the shiny new thing as much as anybody else. But um, as you get bigger, uh, those turns on a dime are, can be painful um, because you've invested a lot of energy, time, manpower, especially if you're leading a team. Um, now I've got to go communicate to my team that all of this work that we've done, we're going to take this in a completely different direction. 
um, that can be a bit draining. I think it's it's a trade-off where you you don't want this inertia to where we can never change once we set our course. Um, but but the reality is when you've invested time and energy into something, it, it can be um, it can be disheartening, it can be discouraging at times when um, you're scattered. And, and at times, I do think we almost took on change as a persona, like as a cultural persona. Meaning, like we were addicted to it. If <laughs> if we hadn't reorganized the company um, in the past twelve months, it was like, okay, we well, we've got to change things up, and like we're, we were constantly <laughs> moving floors. I mean, we were rearranging the office. It was like we we so had not even this, theoretical change. You guys were no, physically moving things around. <laughs> yeah, there there was like this discomfort with um, anything that was static. <laughs> and I, I, again, I think like at times it, it can be on, on the wor- worst side, I'd say, you know, it's disheartening, but it's also distracting. It can be unproductive, um, if you're changing just for the sake of change. So, you know, there's always trade-offs, like you said, things are on a spectrum. I would rather err on the side of agility and, and willingness to, um, to react to things quickly. But with that, I think, comes overreactions, um, you know, unnecessary uh, change that creates communication issues where not everybody's on the same page. Um, and so as you get bigger, I notice that becoming more of a challenge for the company because you have a lot more people that are involved. It's when you've got a, a hundred person team, the challenges are a lot different than when you have a thousand person team. You have international offices and you've got people spread out in multiple uh, buildings, even around town. Um, the, the challenges of changing quickly become uh, much larger. And um, I, that's something that I think makes it hard for large companies, but also uh, makes it worth pursuing is how do we set this up to where if we are going to be agile, we do it without fumbling all over ourselves. We, we communicate properly. We make sure everybody's in sync with this new change or new direction. Um, that's, that's part of the fun. And you see big companies like Amazon, uh, biggest company in the world, and they do it. I mean, they have structure that allows them to be quick and enter new businesses and um, do new technologies and uh, accept failure. You know, I, so I, it's it's definitely possible. So whether you're early stage business and it's easy because there's three of you, or you know you've got tens of thousands of employees, I think it's um, it's it's aspirational. It's something that businesses um, who want to be around uh, over the long run um, should try to do. We should call Jeff, see if he changes floors frequently <laughs> at Amazon yeah. or buildings, probably. He's like, New York, you're going to Hong Kong today. Um, before we get off this topic, I'm curious to hear, I want to lean in a little bit more into the topic of, of people, a big trend or topic that keeps coming up in conversations is how to retain or attract and retain good talent. Um, what, what was that like? And you mentioned a little bit, it, it can be disheartening if you've worked on something for three months and then the boss walks in and says, thanks for your effort, but we're moving this way. What, what was it like both attracting and retaining people or, or maybe not retaining people that weren't a fit? Yeah, I think to answer the first part on the attraction side, um, you've got to think about it competitively. You know, what are the alternatives for people when you're small, you're recruiting mostly regionally um, because, you know, somebody's not going to move cross country for <laughs> a huge gamble necessarily. It's more difficult to to recruit people sure. um, from a national talent pool. And so how do we make ourselves a more attractive employer than others in the region? I mean, there's compensation. 
Um, there's the type of work that you're getting to do. There's the culture, the, the perks. We were always innovating in terms of uh, things. We even had our own currency called um, Fanny Chips. I don't know if that's still around. Um, <laughs> where instead of just giving people cash bonuses, they were chips that you could redeem for like a restaurant gift card in town or something like baseball tickets or something. But the point was like, you had to spend it on something splurging. Like it wasn't just, you know, a $200 bonus that went to your bank account and you forgot it the next day. It was an experience that you wouldn't have done for yourself. And I thought things like that were really thoughtful and cool and, and what separated the company culturally from you know, a lot of uh, uh, employers in the region. And so there was a lot of thought given on the attraction side. I think retention was easy in the beginning. Um, we had probably like a 90, 90 something percent retention rate. I mean, it was, it was absolutely insane. And um, I think wages played into it. The company was constantly getting pressed for how much higher its median wages were um, versus state and national averages, I didn't know um, that. which was impressive. Um, you had, uh, I mentioned, you know, perks and things like that. You had fulfillment. You had work that people cared about. They believed in. We were the market leader. And I, I don't discount that. I mean, it, it's got to suck, I think, working for a big company that's like number two or number three in every category and you're just your strategy is copying the leader i mean that can be a profitable venture but i can't imagine for you know people who want to be entrepreneurs or innovators get much fulfillment from that so talent wise i think we all enjoyed winning <laughs> and and really creating new markets um, and then, you know, there was also the employee stock program, um, which I think is important for retention of top talent. You know, it's if somebody's going to leave for well, and I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll be candid with you all. I almost left midway through my career. Um, and that was when I got introduced to the employee stock program um, and started thinking about it differently. Now I'm an owner in this culture, in a sense. And um, I think that is an important retention tool for your top talent, because if, if they don't directly see the benefit to them for creating all of this opportunity, all of this growth, um, there's probably not gonna be that loyalty. I mean, all of the other stuff helps, but I think that upside is really critical. I'm a big proponent of it, that businesses big and small should figure out a way to bring more employees in as owners, even if they're very small fractional shares, because you wanna feel like what you're doing is ultimately contributing to the value of the company. Um, and, and so that to me was the biggest thing that they did. And um, there were a lot of people that had a life-changing event at the exit of Big Ass Fans. Um, and so that was really, really cool. Um, I know the founder to this day is incredibly proud of how many lives were changed. And, you know, it wasn't just gifts. People participated and helped build. Um, but, it, you know, it's one of those things I think was progressive and um, it's becoming more common. But for a fan manufacturer in central Kentucky, that was... That was a novel and innovative concept, I think, when it was introduced. So um, I, I always thought the business was thinking ahead about what was going to make it successful and people, you know, being able to attract, going, coming full circle here, being able to attract and retain talent is absolutely paramount to the success of a company. It, it won't work any other way. 
A couple of themes that I think are so important, and you hit a switch on one of them is ownership that we talk a lot about with companies. If people do not feel ownership or the ability to bring an idea to the table and know that they have agency over the future or the current state of the company, then innovation isn't likely going to happen or it will only in small incremental ways over time. And it while it sounds like, you know, big ass fans did that to such a large degree, even even if a company isn't willing to change floors every six months, you have like employees have to have the ability to know that I can bring an idea to the table and I've I've ownership over what is happening here. Um, and so I think those are those are two of my favorite, I think, themes out of the story um, that you don't you don't have to jump in with the deep end and be as progressive. Um, hopefully a lot of companies are inspired to do so, because it obviously look at the change that um, that Big S fans has made. Um, but and the other thing I want to say, too, that I love is you don't have to be a sexy company to function in a in a really cool, progressive way. You guys sold fans. It's mm-hmm. not interesting. It is a ceiling fan. The last time I even thought about a ceiling fan is never. But I, I, I love that the founder didn't let that change, that we are going to take ownership and be an interesting, dynamic place to work you said people cared about their jobs there was fulfillment it was fans and people (laughs) felt fulfillment so I just I want to encourage it because you know we we have so much industry here in Kentucky not all of it is particularly like internationally newsworthy from and you know we're not necessarily Amazon or having the next exciting tech ideas on an app per se but it doesn't matter what you're doing you can still be innovative um, in the way that you do business. Well, a line that I always go to when I'm doing like speaking engagements, things like that, is there are no boring categories. There are only boring brands. Um, and I 100% believe that. I think the unsexy industries and categories are the best because there's less competition. It's easier to differentiate and stand out. Um, and it's unexpected. And that was what was so jarring. You know, obviously the name, um, you can't forget it. And it's so perfect. Um, but the company put so much energy into industrial design, um, customer experience, unique marketing approaches. You know, everybody remembers the stress donkeys and, you know, the, the coffee mugs and hats and stuff like that, that were a lot of fun. And it, it, you're right. It's like, I don't expect this from my ceiling fan manufacturer, but that's what made it so unique and different. And so I, I, I think there's tons of opportunity in the region for, um, yeah, you don't have to be in tech. Um, you can make physical things. You, you know, you can be in an old guard industry um, and you can still innovate from a culture standpoint, from, you know, go to market, um, all these things. There's, there's areas for upside. So I love that you point that out because I do think, you know, especially younger entrepreneurs come in and think that it's, it's gotta be tech or it's gotta be this. There's, there's opportunity in the margins and, and it's, in places where other people ignore it. Yeah, we it's a lot of the response we get from companies that we now work with, um, many who are actually in the building industry as well, which is a very old guard industry. And they say, well, we're not a tech company. We don't do hackathons. And you don't have to be a tech company to do, you know, innovation experiences for your employees, et cetera. Um, but I want to take this opportunity to jump to another really boring industry, which is um, cleaning products. So you decided to go from fans to cleaning solutions. What in the world made you decide to jump into a new venture? It sounds like you obviously met your co-founder at Big Ass Fans, but what, what did that transition look like? Well, we were exploratory of different industries. We, again, we, we knew we wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. 
Um, and so we started looking at um, industries where we thought we could actually take pages from the big ass fans playbook and you know, maybe there was poor branding, um, little product differentiation, the channel or the supply chain was broken, the customer experience was was broken or non-existent. And, you know, cleaning checked all of these boxes, hadn't changed. Um, all of the cleaners, they look and work the same. Um, they're all incredibly inefficient. Um, so when you think about big ass fans, the concept was instead of using a bunch of small fans that, you know, suck up energy and floor space and, and whatever, we're just going to put one big one over there and it saves a ton of energy one, and One space. big ass fan in the middle yeah. of the room. And so you're, you know, you're, um, we took that cue with cleaning. We thought, why are people, you know, shipping products that are 98% water when we have water at home and then throwing out the bottle and sprayer after one use, like the supply chain's broken, nobody's winning, whether it's the manufacturer, the retailer, the customer. Um, and then, you know, uh, branding, it, it, there just wasn't a lot of, of interest from our perspective in um, kind of unique voice, um, unique persona. It was all either aspirational or extremely like chemical and sterile sounding brands. And so we saw an opportunity in the middle to kind of develop a unique voice. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think there was... Um, I think there was just this attraction to boring industries like we talked about. Like for me, that's a lot of fun because it's unexpected. Um, and so we were able to um, build Truman's into something that people really thought was fun and different and engaging. And I think when, you know, we, we did the build in public thing um, where we took the idea, like literally renderings and put them on a splash page and solicited feedback. And we did that for about six months, shipping demo product from our garage, that kind of thing. And by the time we launched, we had 10,000 people who had signed up um, to be notified like when we were gonna start shipping product, which was a really good tell for us um, that this what there was something here, like people actually, there was more emotion involved. We kind of thought cleaning was not emotional, but it was like, okay, people actually can like their cleaning brand. Like we can make a connection here. We can tell a story. And, um, we, you know, we parlayed that into a, a really successful launch. Like our, our demand was much higher than we had forecasted. Um, our customers were much more engaged. Like we didn't, I, I, that had made the biggest mistake saying we won't need customer service because like who needs help cleaning like <laughs> you spray it on surface and you wipe it um but when we turned on live chat it started dinging you know questions about ingredients you know that say for this surface like my kid has this allergy like it was like oh my gosh there really is this untapped desire to establish a relationship um with the brand that they're using that it, it just can't be met because it's all sold at retail why is it all sold at retail? Well, it's because you can't ship profitably a $3 bottle of glass cleaner to somebody's home. Um, it's got to go on pallets, you know, and big trucks and then sit on a shelf where somebody goes and picks it up for themselves. And so there were all these breaks that we were like, we can, we can do this if we shrink the footprint, we change the user experience, we're cutting waste out in the process, we're increasing margin and, you know, a byproduct is we can actually talk to our customers, hear what they want, um, and then make, turn that into a virtuous cycle. We can actually improve the product. We can actually launch new things. We can change the way we take it to market based on this feedback. And so 
all of these little things were super exciting to us because I think the more breaks you find, the more you ask like, why is it that way? You realize, like I said, there's opportunity in the margins where nobody in that industry wants to upset the way it's done right now um, because there's a lot of risk to that. And um, they, they don't wanna you know piss off their customer, which is the retailer. Um, and so there's limitation to what the, the big guys in the space can do. Um, and so I think that's why you see startups pop up in general. They're doing something because they feel like it's harder for bigger companies to do or they're incapable of doing it. And that was very much how we, we felt about the cleaning industry. Sounds like you guys are tapping into, I, I don't think consumers are smarter now. It's probably insulting to previous generations, but I do think we more are more informed. Thank you. We are more informed and more aware that it doesn't have to be this way. I, my husband and I are opening up an Airbnb and, um, which yes, has been as stressful as everyone said it would be. Turns out you can't avoid that. But I went into Walmart for the first time in forever. And I realized why haven't I been in here? Because I don't really buy retail brands. I buy brands direct to consumer for the most part. I have things shipped to my door and also probably Amazon, like Walmart can blame them. But I thought about you guys as I walked through the cleaning aisle um, because we admit, you had mentioned it's it's so much water being shipped and there's just all these water-based products on the table. And what is shipped to my door is a was an empty plastic bottle and a concentrate. And you guys were one of the first to do it. And now there's so many others that are that are adopting that philosophy. And I do think our generation cares about ingredients, about the allergies, about, you know, the disruptors over a long period of time. So I just I think it's brilliant how in the timing that you guys had getting in getting into the market. Yeah, there has been a lot of innovation and investment in the space, which is exciting. You know, I think every company kind of sets the the big vision in the beginning, like what do we want to accomplish besides being personally, you know, successful? And for us, it was we wanted to sh see the market shift to concentrates to, you know, we set a goal of like 50% over the next 10 years, where when you go into Walmart, you know, hopefully five, six, seven years from now, the shelf is going to look different. So even if you buy it at retail, there's not going to be all that unnecessary waste. And we've talked to senior leadership at most of these retailers. It, it is happening. It's coming. There are obstacles that need to be considered and worked around, but um, it is becoming popularized, this concept of of reducing, um, you know, recycling is okay. The stats on that show, it's, it's pretty imperfect. Um, and, you know, we need to figure out ways to just take this obvious waste out of supply chains. And that's across all industries. And I think you're, you're right. Consumers are starting to recognize that there are viable alternatives. I mean, when we launched I couldn't tell you how many people didn't even realize that these products are mostly water, that the active ingredients make up about 2% of the, the total volume. So, uh, and, and why would you, right? I mean, it's, it, you, nobody's ever told that story. They, I mean, the, the big players in the space certainly don't want you to know that. Um, and so there is more education and more information out there with, with the internet and, you know, social media and stuff like that. So this change is happening. And for us, that's, exciting because you know we said the same thing at big ass fans we wanted to change the way people thought about ceiling fans we want to change the way they look the way they function so that like you know when you're on your deathbed and all fans have started moving in this direction you're like yeah that we we started that we did that like those are kind of cool things i think in your career beyond just you know financial success and things that you can actually point back and say look at the impact that we had through the work we were doing and I just want to call it too. I, I think we we love Kentucky. 
we all have just such a passion and you guys did that from from Kentucky. You guys have made a stamp on on an international industry ultimately, but on just so many trends. I think that's that's gotta be exciting for you to sit at home and be like, I, I've truly made a ripple in the way the world functions. And that's a really cool feeling. Um, I have a final question for you for the executives, the employees at corporate companies sitting out there. What are maybe one to three things that you hope at minimum that they take away from from your experience, whether that be at Truman's or certainly at big ass fans? You know, it's a, it's a great question. And I'm always wary of uh, prescriptive advice because situations are, are so unique, but I'll, um, I'll give a nod to the book that my co-founder wrote um, called The Elephant's Dilemma. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the analogy of the tethered elephant, but um, at circuses, uh, they used to um, tether the baby elephants to a stake in the ground. Um, and they never had to change it um, as the elephant got bigger because the elephant had learned that it couldn't go anywhere. So even when it became this you know, powerful animal, it could have easily moved the, the stake and gone away. It never did. Um, and he used that analogy to describe what it's like uh, for senior executives in, in corporate America. They don't think they've been kind of conditioned to thinking they have to move slowly and they can't innovate from the confines of you know the the, the C-suite at these bigger companies, and um, it, it's really a reflection on it is possible. You know, you can do it. You can have an impact within your organization. He left. You know, I think he was proud of a lot of the work he did at his big company at GE. Um, he left to a smaller company um, to have an impact at big ass fans, and then left to an even smaller company. Um, but the point wasn't that you have to quit your job and go start a company, but look for opportunities to make get those small wins and innovate within your organization. How can you incrementally change the way things are being done for the better? And I think um, so many times we just fall into the trap of um, just business as usual. <laughs> you know, you go through the motions and I, the last thing, you know, speaking of, of deathbeds again, you want to be sitting back on and reflecting is all the things you didn't do, all the chances you didn't take. And again, this isn't a plea for everybody to quit their job and start a company. I don't think that's for everybody, but um, you, you got to fall. You got to get out of that that mindset of I'm just moving the ball forward a little by little by little each day and find those opportunities to, to, to kind of reimagine the way you work. So it's a lot of it, I guess, what it boils down to is reflection on what impact can you make? Um, how can things be better? Um, and then making an earnest effort. If, if your environment doesn't allow it, then maybe it is time to, to go somewhere else. But um, I, I think people don't ask enough questions. They don't you know, think often enough about why things are the way they are. So there's tons of, you all know this, tons of opportunity for innovation in, in big companies and to be an entrepreneur. You don't need permission, um, but you do need to have that curiosity. You do need to seek it out. So, you know, that's the, the best form of um, general advice I can give because, like I said, everybody's situation, everybody's risk profile, all that's unique. Um, but, but look for those opportunities even within your organization to make a difference. That's perfect. Um, we are so excited for people to be able to listen to this episode once published. Um, you guys can find, uh, well, you can follow our newsletter at innovationincubated.com. We will also likely release it on our social media. This one might be good enough that we might make people subscribe to the newsletter for it. Uh, that's what makes you special. Alex, we found it. 
We we did. It we took found all, it. It took the entire recording, it but took, we found something. It to, took thirty nine yeah. minutes and fifteen seconds. Um, but no, everyone, thank you for sticking with us, Alex. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. I'm very excited for people to hear about this, and we will make it a three peat at some point. We will we will have you back. I'm sure. I am looking forward to it, Liz. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you know someone who should be on our show, even if it's you, reach out to us at innovationincubated.com. And while you're on our website, sign up for our newsletter. Lastly, thanks to our sponsor, Apex Software. The right software partner can change everything. So reach out today at apexsoftware.com. Until next time, go team.